the word of God from Romans chapter 8. If you're a newcomer or a, a visitor today with us, you're here for the first time, we do welcome you. And we'd like to ask you to fill out one of the cards on the white side, please, and hand it to an usher or a pastor as you leave the service today. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. Sometimes we enter the Christian life with a misconception. That is that because we found salvation to be freely given us in Christ, without any purchase price whatsoever, that the balance of the Christian life was a free ride. We thought that since we had no debt to pay in order to enter the path of Christian grace, there is no indebtedness whatsoever about Christian living. But that, of course, is a misconception. We're told in this passage that we are indebted to the Holy Spirit for the mighty work which he has done in us. Not a debt to earn our way to heaven, but a debt of gratitude, which we will be paying all our days. And God, as he always does, sweetens the payment of debt because he has so ordained it that when we pay off this debt to the Spirit, a vigor and power and enjoyment of the Christian life ensues. In fact, this vigor and comfort of the Christian life is dependent upon the payment of that debt. The reason many have paltry and withered, miserable Christian lives is that they've not made one payment on the debt they owe to the Holy Spirit, which is to mortify or put to death the deeds of the body. That's what we do to pay our indebtedness to the Spirit of God for the new life we have received. But we have yet to delve into the depth of how that is accomplished. That's before us now. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now that's a very terse kind of instruction. And in it, just here, we do not have an amplification adequate to the complete understanding. But if we gather together all of the passages of Scripture that have to do with this matter of putting to death the deeds of the body or the remaining sins which linger in the body, if we bring them all together, we will see that God has given us 
ample instruction. In fact, we could say that God has given to the Christian all he needs to conquer his sin. God has given to the Christian all he needs to conquer his sin. Notice I didn't say he's given to the Christian all he needs to remove his sin or to eradicate it, but to conquer it, that is to subdue it, or as it reads here, to put it to death, to mortify it. All the resources that you need to put this to death are given. They are here. That's good news. Now, of course, we have to remind ourselves of that which we discovered last week, that this living, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This living does not refer to eternal life. That is, we don't gain eternal life by mortifying the deeds of the body. That would be a misinterpretation. What we gain here is a fullness of the Christian life. We gain the enjoyment of that life of which the Holy Spirit is the author. We come into it with zest. Uh, we, as Philip's translation reads, we really learn how to live in Christ. And you want that, don't you? I want that. You want that. We all want to enjoy this life into which Christ has brought us. And the way to do it is to put to death the deeds of the body, mortify them, thus paying our indebtedness to the Spirit. What then are the, the resources that God has given to enable us to do it? Well, there, I want to pick out some here and touch on them. He's given us in the first place a picture of the nature of sin. If it's going to be subdued in us, if we're really going to get victory over it, we've got to understand the enemy. And he gives it that in the scriptures. For example, he shows us that the activity of sin is incessant. Perpetually does sin hound the believer. Until we die and are glorified and go to be with Christ, sin reigning in, or remaining in our members will harass us. It will always seduce, always try to tempt. It never rests. Therefore, in our mortification of sin, we cannot rest. We do not come to a place where we say, there, we have arrived. This is an enduring obligation of the Christian. Even when we sleep, sin would rise into the dream bring to us things we would never conjure up in conscious thought. Wicked things may rise in our minds. That's why a Christian is called to spiritual music or scripture and prayer before he wraps himself in the arms of sleep, that his very sleep may be sanctified. Incessant activity Therefore, incessant warfare on the part of the Christian. Now, the Bible tells us about the purpose which is in the heart of sin. What's it really after? Well, sin aims to destroy your usefulness 
in your generation. By weakening the soul, it will try to undermine your effectiveness as a Christian. You will no longer be dynamic and fruitful. You'll go through the motions of Christian service. And there's many a preacher who's preached his whole lifetime. But the whole thing has amounted to nothing. Nothing. Because though a Christian and embracing Christ and sensing himself called to the ministry, he has not undertaken the evangelical mortification of sin. And therefore the soul's power has been weakened. And the same thing happens in the lay worker. You want to serve Christ, but it amounts to nothing. Because you have not subdued the enemy of sin in your being. What sin is trying to do, subtly, deceitfully, is to grow into larger sins. That little sin wants to become a scandalous, soul-destroying sin. Every beginning, lesser, petty sin has the great sin as its objective. For example, a hateful thought has as its objective murder. A lustful thought has as its objective adultery. An unbelieving thought has as its objective atheism. That's where it would go. And if your will consents to it, even though in the providence of God you're prevented from going all the way through with this matter, if your will consents to it, the sin has success. You see... Sin is trying to destroy your body. It wants to bring about your physical death. That's its objective. Because if you're dead, there's no godly offspring from you, no godly influence or character or witness and so on. All that is lost and cut off. And sin has as its objective not your enjoyment, not your thrills. Don't be deceived. Sin wants you in your coffin and it will not be satisfied. It's working toward that end. Sin's main up antagonist is not God, but you. The enmity is between you and the devil, and he is seeking to bring about your death. Now the Bible shows us that the sins, which we see as separate and specific, are really intertwined and joined at their roots. Deep within us there are the gnarled roots of lust that show up in superficial manifestations. And therefore, in the mortification of sin, we cannot be content with merely cutting off some external showing of sin, but the axe has to be laid to the root of the tree. There deep within us where sin has grip upon us, there it must be mortified and subdued. I wonder if we have yet come to see the danger of the sin that remains in the believer, how serious it is. If you are putting up with sin, swallowing them as you go along and thinking little of them, it's only normal and natural to have these sins, after all. What is happening is a hardening of your heart. 
the more you put up with sins and endure them and do not seek to mortify them, the harder your heart becomes until one day, perhaps it is here, you are sermon-proof. No message of any anointed servant of Christ can get through to you anymore. Your heart is too hard. Some of you are even sickness-proof. God will visit some rod of affliction upon you, lay you out upon your bed, put you in the hospital, put you in great pain and suffering, and even there you will not call out to God because you have coexisted with your sin until your heart is hard and you are immune to all that God would bring against you to break you. Sin that is unmortified, unsubdued, allowed to run its course, sears the conscience, blinds the mind. It stupefies the emotions. The Christian is rendered powerless in its hand. And we who had been delivered from the dominion of sin, brought out of its kingdom into the kingdom of righteousness, have in effect been brought back under the tentacles of reigning sin. What a loss for us. What a victory for the enemy. But God, that's the great word of Scripture, God has given a strategy for the conquest of indwelling sin. The strategy rises out of Scripture and the experience of the church. The strategy is for the subduing, the mortifying of the sins which still exist in the believer. I do not say the diverting of them. We do that too easily. We have pride and we are concerned with it. We divert it. It becomes worldliness. Simon, the sorcerer in the book of Acts, was convicted of his sorcery and he simply diverted his sin into ambition and covetousness. He wanted the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to get gain. No, it's not the diversion of sin. It's not the sporadic victory, an occasional conquest. Once in a while, I have victory over this indwelling sin. That's no victory at all. I'm talking about rendering reigning sin dormant, making it inactive within you, putting it to rest, so that the regular pattern of your life is overcoming. And you only can look back and remember the days when that was a problem to you. That's what God wants. Put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body, and you will live. What are some of the instructions that the Word of God gives? Well, we must be careful to remember that these instructions are only for the believer. Only the death of Christ can bring about the death of sin. Every human being that walks on this planet has the duty to mortify sin in his body. Everyone. But the non-believer 
who has not yet embraced Christ as his own, that is not his immediate duty. His immediate duty is to surrender to Christ and to be converted, to be made new, to let the axe be laid to the root of the tree. And after that, it will be his lifelong duty to mortify remaining sin in his being. But until the unbeliever has done that, he has no duty. In fact, if the unbeliever tries to mortify sin, all that will happen is that he will grow harder and harder and more and more cynical and think that nothing works of which the Bible speaks. First, you must come to Christ and be saved, repenting of your sins. Then you're on the beginning of an evangelical mortification of your sin. When you are subduing sin, don't pick out one vexing problem and start there. That's our natural way to do it. Well, I'm concerned about this. That troubles me. I'll start there. No, God isn't pleased with that. God asks a universal obedience from you. That one sin may be vexing your soul, but all the things you're doing are vexing the soul of God. And if you simply apply yourself to one sin, your mortification arises out of self-love and not out of love for God and His honor. You must therefore set before your eyes the whole of God's expectation of you. Not only those things which trouble you, but those with which you are very comfortable. And ask God to give you a universal obedience to his whole pattern of holiness and grace. Then you must seek to understand the guilt and the evil of those sins which God brings before you. In other words, go to the law. Some Christians set the, the law aside after they become believers, as if it has done its function. No, go to the law. The law now is for you a great measuring rod. And ask your conscience, persuade your conscience to be informed by the law at the point of its own lusts and corruptions so that the law can show you where reigning sin needs to be subdued within your life. Go to the gospel and find there Christ's coming in order to save his people from their sins as that happened in me. Go to the gospel and see that Christ died for the sins of the world as it benefited me. That Christ's whole objective is to present a church which is without blemish and without spot. Am I of that order? In other words, seek from the law and the gospel all the help you can get to bring into vivid relief those areas of life the Spirit would have you mortify. Diligently long, persistently long for deliverance from sin. Unless you long for it, unless you weep for it and want it, you will not have it. Seek out the circumstances and the occasions where sins 
beset you. Know the ways of sin in your life. What are the places where sin reaches me? And avoid those places. What are the times and circumstances in which I fall into temptation? Avoid those. Let the Spirit bring promptings to you at the very beginning of a sin's arising. Nip it in the bud. Immediately obey the impulse of the Spirit to cut that thing off and replace the weeds of besetting sins with the beautiful plants of Christian grace. Instead of pride existing there, plant humility and lowliness of spirit and cultivate that. Keep cultivating that, that there be no soil or room or nourishment for pride. If lust is besetting you, plant in its place moral purity and let that white flower overshadow lust's leaves. If passion is your vexing thing, put patience in its place. If love of the world has you in its grip, let the love of heaven grow in its room. If you have a critical temper and a critical spirit toward others, plant there in its spot loving Christian acceptance of all people. Let that flourish. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. And apply your hearts to your calling. God has given to everyone a niche, a calling, a vocation in life. You know what yours is, but you've wandered from it. God doesn't want you to seek to get outside the bounds of your vocation. For within those bounds there is safety and strength. Cherish that calling which is yours, that trade, that vocation, that niche in life which is especially yours. And give your heart to it to develop it to the very fullest and occupy yourself with it. And there will not be the time or strength to let remaining sin flourish in your being. Remember who you are, child of the covenant, member of the body of Christ, citizen of heaven. How can I do these things and sin against God? And don't assume too early that a sin is mortified. Don't tell yourself ever, there, I have victory over that. That's fatal. Let Christ tell you, You'll hear his voice. My sheep know my voice. When Christ speaks, he speaks with authority as no other one speaks. You'll discern his voice when he says, My son, that old pattern that you thought was with you for life is dead. When he says it, you'll know it. But wait for his voice. Oh, what resources God gives. He not only shows us the anatomy of human sin, he not only shows us the strategy of overcoming 
remaining sin. But our God is so gracious, he gives his very own being as a resource to the Christian. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that the three particular members of the Trinity, each one provides a necessary element of your conquest of sin. Now, pay close attention to this. You will not hear it again. The Heavenly Father, the great God and creator of the universe, he himself is dedicated to your mortifying sin. And so he shows himself to you as great and majestic. Every impulse you have to think of God as overarching might and majesty is his effort to subdue sin. Do you remember Job? All through his book, he could not subdue a sin of self-righteousness and pride until in the last chapters he comes to say, Now I see thee with mine eyes, and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He saw the majesty of God and finally was able to mortify sin. God the Father is so holy that he cannot allow one unrighteousness to prevail in his world. He would sooner make heaven and earth one entire hell than to allow one righteousness, one unrighteousness to prevail. He cannot allow one unrighteousness to prevail because he is of purer eyes than to allow that. That is the intensity and purity of the holiness of our God. Do you expect him simply to wink at your sins? When he says, Be ye holy as I am holy, who is it speaking but the righteous Father? And with such a God, Offering himself to us, we have all we need to be holy. So the Son offers himself, the second person of the Trinity. We put to death within us sin by expecting relief from Christ, expecting it, looking to him, because he is tender and gracious and faithful. He has promised that he would save his people from their sins. And so our whole expectation ought to be that from Christ would come our holiness. And the more we look to him, the more we draw out from his great heart all the sanctifying grace we need. And the more we look to him, the more we want to use the means of scripture and prayer and worship and sacrament in order to gain holiness. So our expectation is from Christ. And the death of Christ, his cross, is held before our eyes. Picture Christ bearing your sins, praying, bleeding, dying. Put that image of Christ into your heart. He is there suffering for my sins 
and take his precious blood and apply that to the places of your own lust and corruption. When the cross of Christ is planted in the heart of a believer, that believer is able to mortify the remaining sin in his life. And yet, as glorious as the Father and the Son's provision are, the Holy Spirit is the principal person of the Trinity in the mortifying of human sin. He is called, for example, in Scripture, the Spirit of burning. The Holy Spirit comes as a purging, refining fire, and he enters deeply into the soul of a man, and he destroys at the root these sins which would vex and claim us. And so the Holy Spirit must be given great room and authority to enter into the soul of man and to cleanse it by his cleansing, purging fire. Oh, what a ministry it is. This is the ministry of the Spirit in the believing life. He is the sanctifier. No other element can do this work. Some have thought in the years gone by that by wearing rough clothing or by harming their bodies or fasting severely and so on, they could rid themselves of remaining sin. Some have entered monastic life. Some have done great penance. These are human methods when God has given his own method, which is the indwelling, purifying work of the Spirit of God to cleanse the believer of remaining sin. He comes. He plants the cross of Christ in our being. He plants the graces of the new life and watches them flourish. He strengthens us with might in the inner man. He aids us in praying. He lifts up our hearts. He makes us strong in holiness. Blessed be his name forever and ever. We're coming into the season of weddings, which we all look forward to. And I'm always touched when I see the bride place her hand on the knife of the cake but she never makes the cut until the groom's strong hand rests on top of hers and together they cut. Is that a symbol? One Christian author said, that's how the spirit and the believer cooperate in the ridding of remaining sin. We put our hand on the knife but it would be powerless unless the great hand of the Spirit came upon us. He aids us. He facilitates. It's something we do. We obey. He doesn't do it apart from us, but He does it in us and through us and together with us. We cooperate with Him, and together we place our strength in the subduing of the sin that remains in our life. And because we do, we live. That is life in Christ 
gets exciting and fruitful and adventurous. And as the chapter progresses, we will see that we become more than conquerors through him that loved us. That doesn't mean heaven, but that means now we are conquerors. Some of you have dying souls. You're in Christ, but your souls are drooping. And the reason is you have never mortified sin. You've allowed it to have full course and reign, done whatever the body called upon you to do. I'm saying you can leave that dying, drooping life behind you and you can be more than a conqueror. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. May it be so for every one of us. Let us pray. Gracious and blessed God, we love you for your marvelous providing. You haven't left us ignorant. You've shown us the enemy. You've shown us the strategy. And you've given us yourself. Lord, forgive us that in the face of such marvelous help, we have been weakened and almost destroyed by human sin. Set us free, God. Conquer sin in us. Make us dynamic. Through the evangelical mortification of sins.